This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 38 with guest Christina Lunds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Dario Suvorova, and welcome to today's episode. No peace without feminism. This is the core message of my guest today. Christina Lunds is the co-founder of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy, a research, advocacy and consulting organization founded in the UK in 2016. Christina is a human rights activist and a former advisor to the German Foreign Office, and today she's challenging the status quo in the foreign policy sphere. In this episode, we discuss educational inequality in Germany, and she shares her personal story of being a working-class child from a village to Oxford graduate, and her latest book, The Future of Foreign Policy is Feminist. When you feel like you want to learn more about the show, find us on Instagram at waa.berlin. Hello, Christina, and welcome to the studio. I'm very much looking forward to a very serious and, of course, very fun conversation about feminism and why foreign policy needs feminism today. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Let's start with your personal story of how from being raised in a village of 18 inhabitants in Germany, you came all the way to Oxford to pursue your dream and to study global governance and diplomacy. Can you tell me about that magical maybe forces that were pulling you outside of your hometown? That might be a bit of a longer story, but I'm not going to bore you. So let's see how we're going to tell this. So you're right. I grew up in this beautiful, tiny village of 80 people in Franconia in Switzerland. That's in the north of Bavaria. Franconia sounds beautiful. Right. And it is, it's gorgeous. It's this tiny village, like surrounded by forest. And we have like this like deer next to our house. And it's, yeah, it's gorgeous. So I grew up there. The the parents of both my parents and my grandparents on both sides, they were farmers. And it was like a lovely childhood. It was like running around, playing around. I have a twin brother. I have an older sister. And I was always kind of the the little one because my twin brother, he's actually five minutes older than I am. So I was always the little one. And very soon, I guess, I I somehow was very ambitious and was always one of the best in schools and like really enjoyed learning things all the time. And so it also happened that after kind of high school, after my high school diploma, I had, again, one of the best of like a cohort of um, 100 people. I was amongst the top three, four percent. And but I didn't know what to do after because I didn't know anyone personally who, who went to university. Mm-hmm. So that was really abstract for me. So I applied for jobs, but also for university, but for subjects that people said, that's what you do if you have a very good abitur, high school diploma. So medicine, psychology, because in Germany, these are the ones that are toughest to get into. So I did that, applied for both, got into both of them, but then decided to start with like business and economics um, because it felt like the safe thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because safety, um, I guess it has to do with my background played a very important role. So there was like the idea of wasting time and not earning money and just thinking what you want to do and stuff that really didn't apply ever. But towards the end of my psychology degree, and again, I was top of my cohort, I realized I didn't want to become a psychologist. And I mean, some people would say that was a bit late to realize that, but I like from so many years, I had no idea what I want to do. And then... Around that time, I had a partner and he, he was he was British 
And he said, well, Christina, but you're actually interested in like societal topics and politics. Um, why would you not want to study this? And I said, because in Germany, you have to do your master's and what you did your bachelor's in because it's so strict, the system here. And he said, yeah, then come to the UK. Like, well, what? Like, why would I go? Like, people like me don't go to London to study there. Like he suggested London. And he said, Well, try. And so I got into a master's at University College London in like public, um, like global governance and ethics. It was about international law and human rights and um, global political economy and so forth. And, and I really enjoyed that. And I also spent a summer in Stanford through a scholarship doing a summer program on political psychology like precisely where politics and psychology meet, right? Like about why do people make certain political decisions? How are systems of discrimination perpetuated? Why do people elect in a certain way? Why do people get scared and buy into narratives around terrorism, national safety and all these topics? And that was really fascinating and eye-opening for me. So I thought, okay, one year only, like a one year's master's in, in those subjects is not enough. So whilst a few years before that, I would have never considered applying to Oxford because that was just in my head, not for people like me coming from a working class background and first family to go to uni and Oxford, if you look at the numbers, clearly is for the yeah upper class, like the global upper class. But I applied and because I was in London in my bachelor's, I all of a sudden had friends who did go to these places for their bachelor's. So I started to be able to relate because you, you need to know people and see people do things for you to be able to dream of exactly the same, right? Um, so I applied for a degree in global governance and diplomacy in Oxford and um, couldn't afford it. So was lucky to get a full scholarship from the uni for the uni and also for the college and for, yeah, for everything I needed to, to feed myself and be housed in, in Oxford and spend a year there. And yeah, looking back, it it's a funny journey, isn't it? Um, and I'm just so grateful for that adventure that I'm still on, I guess. Beautiful story. And you touched a little bit up on the educational problem in Germany. Can you share and speak more of it? What is this educational inequality in Germany and why? I know also you founded your own initiative, Augenhohe, which is translated as I-level. How come? So... Globally, we have so many problems of inequality and injustices, right? And educational inequality is a huge one. So it pretty much says that the educational success of a child depends on the educational and financial background of the family. Like the better, better educated the parents and the wealthier the parents, the more likely that child will be... Um, educationally successful and receive good education. That applies globally. That's a fact. And um, and in Germany, it's a big fact as well, which is more than unfortunate because Germany is one of the richest countries in the world. But um, amongst the, the rich nations, Germany has one of the highest levels of um, educational inequality. In Germany, it's that if your parents, if one of your parents went to university. The children of those families where one parent went to university, I think it's like 75, between 75 and 80% of those children all also go to university. 
but if none of your parents went to university and they're so-called working class parents, then the likelihood of a child going to university is between 23 and 25 percent. So in Germany, to a huge extent, it's not the intelligence or the ambition um, of a child that determines um, how successfully he or she will be with the job, with the education. And that is a fact that by no means can be accepted. And, you know, it's, I mean, I, I guess my story is considered as one of those um, Aufsteigergeschichten, like those upward mobility stories, those success stories. And um, it is true, but it's a problem that it is a success story because it is it is rare. It is rare for a for someone from a working class background to end up in Oxford. And how yeah. can this be changed? If, if is there a solution that can foster and open up those possibilities to children coming from a background of working class parents? Well, you know, I'm I'm not working in in the policy area of this topic and um there are definitely solutions that would include better financial means for schools in certain areas where people from a certain social economic background would live it is additional support financial support for those parents who cannot afford like digital equipment for example that children would need um or you know when i mentioned before that from the age of 16 actually a bit younger um, that I started being kind of a private teacher on the side, Nachhilfe, that is something that no poor parents can afford, right? And, you know, if you have like a child from a rich, well-educated family and a child from a non-well-educated and a poor family, and they're both equally smart, maybe average, then the one from a rich family, they can afford sending that child to language holidays over the summer. And the poor one has to work in the factory, and the, the rich family, they can afford to pay a private teacher to help them with math and physics. And the poor one, yeah, their fault, like their bad luck, nothing. They can be supported. In. And and the rich one, they might have laptops at home and like the best programs to support their education and success. And the poor ones, nothing. So ultimately, it's it's about finances. And a country like Germany could spend a lot more on education, but countries like Germany also decide to spend more money on, for example, defense and military than on education. And that is something that we need to rethink. Let's speak about your own organization. And the uh, Center for Feminist Foreign Policy is a research advocacy and consulting organization that you founded in 2016 in UK. Christina, what was that moment that you realized that Europe is in dire need for feminist foreign policy? <laughs> Introduce me to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with pleasure. So feminist foreign policy means that we're trying to smash patriarchal structures in foreign and security policy. I love the word smash in there. Yeah, most very powerful. Very powerful and um, <laughs> very ambitious. Okay, let's go back a little bit. So our whole society, like everywhere where we live in the whole world, we've all been living in patriarchy for the past four to six thousand years. Patriarchy means that men are kind of the, the heads of not only states, but also the heads of families. And men in their hands, all resources like power and capital, yeah, monopolized. And in such a society um, that for thousands of years already like passes on 
power and resources from men's hand to men's hand. Many other people, like the majority of society, women, but also those men who don't fit the box of the stereotypical men or the LGBTQI community or people of color, um, they do not have a life as privileged as those of men, but quite the opposite. They experience a fair amount of violence. Um, patriarchy means it's a violent society. We all live in a violent society. Society where in Germany, every day a man tries to kill his partner, ex-partner, and every third day a man in Germany succeeds killing her. Um, it's a society where a study by UN Women last year showed that 97% of young women have experienced some form of sexual harassment, so sexualized violence. It's a society where where there's no woman who has no story of where her boundaries have been violated, where she has been violated, where she has received uh, experienced harassment and world where no single society has achieved equity between men and women. Um, it's a society where 99% of all global trade is in the hands of men. It's a society like where in Germany, women, when they're old, receive on average 50% less pension than men. Um, it's And I could go on and on and on. Um, mm -hmm. It's a society that is, in my opinion, it's it's not acceptable to tolerate such society because it has such huge negative outcomes for the majority. And this negative outlook, like this patriarchal structure, we also find in on the global level between countries. So it's a, a society that <laughs> that came up with such yeah, disgusting um, ideas such as that nuclear weapons, so weapons of mass destruction, and the threat to use nuclear weapons would keep people in safety and security, right? Nuclear deterrence is again and again quoted as stabilization security means. It's a society where the money that is spent on arms exports and nuclear armament and is every year over the past years reaching new heights when at the same time the money spent on global health, on health systems and the health system um, on education is not even close to the money we spend on these negative outcomes. So it's a society where where I'm like, <laughs> why, why is like, it like I that? I have to change this. Yeah. So you saw this, you realized and you realized that you have the urge and the need to change this. But this is also very bold. Yeah. yeah, it is. And thank God I'm not alone. And whilst we're the first organization that focuses exclusively on feminist foreign policy, we're by no means the first working on the topic, actually. So we have the seven countries out there that officially have a feminist foreign policy. In 2014, it was Sweden that started a fem that announced a feminist foreign policy. And then Canada and France, Mexico, Luxembourg, Spain and Libya followed Germany in their current um, coalition agreement, they also mention a feminist foreign policy and there's a fair amount of buzz around it over the past few years. And, and Sweden, for example, defines their feminist foreign policy with three R's, that is rights, representation and resources. So Sweden says, with our feminist foreign policy, we really focus on realizing the same rights for everyone. So focusing on women's rights because men's rights have always been there and realized. We focus on resources like investing through 
oversee development aid, but also through other projects and how they do diplomacy. We focus on giving resources to the realization of a more just international system and on, on human rights and representation. They're saying we need fair power share and have men and women equally represented in all areas of foreign policy and security. We at the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy, we understand feminist foreign policy a bit more comprehensively. Like for us, it's really about dismantling the patriarchal system. So going away from this focus on military security and military spending and the security of nation states to human security and what keeps humans safe. And that is housing and education and health and so forth. And what would you say is the most urgent and important work that you have set for yourself and the organization for this year? Many people ask, why am I, why are we focusing on foreign policy and not on dom domestic policy? couple of responses to that. So first of all, like my feminist trajectory, that started with domestic policy. Like I've been an outspoken feminist individual actor, whatever, um, for the past seven, eight years. It started with a campaign against Bild newspaper that is Germany's and back then also Europe's largest tabloid that is like hugely misogynist and sexist in its portrayal and reporting. Um, so did a campaign against them and caused some waves. I was also involved in 2016 when we managed to have the German rape law, the law on sexualized violence changed and um, with the campaign No Means No. So in 2016, because of the activism by civil society, the German law on sexualized violence was finally made consent-based. But also with my own work experience, like working for the UN in New York and Myanmar or working for a feminist organization in Bogota, Colombia mm. during the peace process and so forth. To me, that field was the one I knew I want to work in because it is diplomacy is one of the most exclusive areas in our society. And hence, activism there has not been as impactful as it would need for proper social change. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, the biggest problems, you just spoke of urgency, the biggest, most urgent problems out there that are pandemics, the climate crisis, the armament, like the arms race out there and um, deteriorating um, global health and, and, and the attacks on the human rights system. These are all international global problems then that can never be solved by nation states themselves. So that is why we're focusing on that because it's the top most urgent problems and they can only be solved if we adopt a global perspective and also work together with international global actors, us as a civil society organization, also with civil society around the world. So are you just challenging with that said the narrative or do you also want to change the actions you want to set new framework going into the future. Yeah, 100%. We want to, we're proposing a new narrative, a new framework. We're saying that, you know, the mainstream teaching and the mainstream understanding of international relations is still the one of the so-called realist paradigm. And the realist paradigm, der Realismus, it says that All states, they live in anarchy with each other because there's no supranational government. Mm -hmm. So there's anarchy between states. And for, for a state to be relatively powerful, that state needs to be like militaristically strong. It needs many arms. It needs the power to dominate and oppress other countries. Um, and it's this narrative that is based on a very, very negative 
view of of human beings. And, you know, in, in other disciplines, like in economics, we, or smart people, have we have come so far to say that the homo economicus, like the idea of the selfish man or human um, that only acts in its own favor, that this is not, like, that is not actually the human being we see in reality, because that doesn't account for care work. It doesn't account for all the voluntary work and so many more other aspects. But this very negative view of humans still exists in international relations. And if you understand or see other individuals so negatively and other states so negatively, it can only result in a narrative that prioritizes weapons, war and violence. Mm -hmm. And we are saying that is not the reality for the majority of people. Instead, what they want is collaboration over competition and they want to be felt safe and that securing national borders has never made any human safe. So yeah. That also explains the paradigm shift that you were mentioning when you aim to counter the power in military with uh, mediation and peace negotiations, completely changing the way Mm. things are talked through and, and things are resolved. Yeah, absolutely. But... If we just pause before we go into discussion of the big news, which is your Mm -hmm. book release, I want to do a short deep dive into the history of feminism Mm -hmm. and maybe get the most interesting insights from you as the expert in the field. And I know that a quote from you is, no peace without feminism, Mm -hmm. right? What are your favorite historical events that, or maybe most important events that you think played a tremendous role in the development of our society. Oh, wow. There's so many, right? The the feminist movement, like in its force, as we know, it has been around for at least the past 200 years. And I mean, considering that we've been living in patriarchy for thousands of years, like the, the gains that feminists before us have made for us, they're just remarkable, right? I mean, in Germany, for example, until... 1997, it was legal to rape women in marriage until the 70s, 76, I think. A woman could not choose her own job without a man's approval until a few years earlier, women were not allowed to have a bank account. And like 100 years back, but more than 100 years back, women were not allowed to vote. And um, until 2016, our no didn't count when it came to rape. And still, there's so many problems. Like in Germany, women do still still don't have control over their own body. Abortion is still criminalized. And there's so many things we still need to fight because the history of feminism really is women, originally women, but it's not um, limited to, to women anymore, the current and latest and for me right understanding of feminism. But the history is like of women and also other political marginalized groups for them to fight, like to break free out of the private space that they had been confined to. So the history of Pachiki is to keep women in the private space and and make women the slave of the house. And that was also when marriage was invented. Um, that was the idea of marriage. Like the idea of marriage is a very negative one. It was about um, once a woman got married in the past, um, she lost all her rights to her mm-hmm. husband. And, and and from then on, it was her duty to take care of the house and the family. So restricting women to the private sphere. And the history of feminism is getting women into the public sphere. And for every step, 
that over the past decades and or centuries, women have taken to get into the, the public sphere. They've been fought with so much violence, like think of the suffragettes when they were fighting for the vote. Some of them died doing that. Like there was the cat and mouse law in the UK where women were caught like suffragettes and then they were force fed. And when they were too weak, um, they were released from prison. And when they gained a bit more strength again, they were caught again. Your connection to the history kind of helps you to stay focused, right? Helps you to continue, stay active, mm -hmm. to continue with your purpose. And I think one of those biggest purposes that you are also trying to communicate to the others is through your latest book mm -hmm. release, which is called The Future of Foreign Policy is Feminist. And can you tell me, Christina, which first of all, congratulations. Thank This you. is very exciting. Very I can exciting. imagine it's a lot of work. <laughs> But can you tell me about, because you have so much knowledge and so much passion, which I respect for, for feminism and feminist foreign policy. And I see how connected you are, right, to this. And what is the motivation? Thank you. And the book came out recently and it's beyond exciting. It's my first book and um, yeah, I'm extremely happy. And so the book is about feminism and foreign policy and how global crises need to be solved. So it has a chapter on the history of diplomacy and the exclusion of women. And it has a chapter on the narratives and in international relations, like things we actually already touched on here in the podcast. I love it. Um, and it has chapters on thematic issues like armament, like weapons. It has one on defending human rights, another one on global feminist health and on climate justice, of course. And what I want readers to take away is pretty easy that The international system, the societies that we live in, it's not, you know, it's not nature law or something that things exist like that. It's societies have been built like that so that they fail the majority of people. The international system has been built like that. Organizations have been built like that. And because of that, we can change them. And in the many chapters, like the book is turned out to be more than 400 pages. I have no idea why. Um, I hope someone's going to read it. <laughs> The book like gives so many concrete examples of what doesn't work and so many concrete examples of how we need to change things so that societies actually work for everyone, so that we fight climate justice, so that we properly defend human rights and so that we uh, divert money back from investing into military and arms, in, but into what keeps people actually safe and, and how we can achieve global health for everyone and so forth. Looking a little bit ahead of us, what was that? What would should that state be where you would look back and say, "Well, now I can rest back, mm -hmm. and I have succeeded with my mission." I mean, you have been advocating for things. You are, you know, released your book. You are have your, you know, own organization, which is already it's already a mechanism that you've started, mm -hmm. right, on many fronts. And what would that perfect state be when you can say? Everything is working. I've said everything with intention. Now I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> you said in the beginning, things that we're doing, that I'm doing with my team now, these are like bold things, bold demands that we have. And um, I don't think I'm going to see it in my lifetime that all the things that we want to see changed, that they will change. So I'm not sure about that retiring aspect. <laughs> and, you know, I have this... Oh, most I have so many incredible people in my life, but one of them is my mentor and friend, Silla Elworthy. Um spoke to her only on the phone last night. And Silla, 
She is 78 years old. She is the, she three times nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. She founded like four or five organizations on peace building and nuclear disarmament and localized peace building and so forth. And she also just released her book, but I don't know if it's the 10th or something, like she's released so many books in her life and, and she's had incredible impact and she's still on it, not because she, she's bored in her life or because she needs the money, like that area really doesn't um, um, pay well anyway. Um, but no, because if I think if you have that, that unwillingness to accept unjust dynamics and unjust societies inside you there, there's no retirement. There's so many aspects that need change. And, you know, writing that book, it was really exhausting doing that next to building and leading an organization, but it was so worthwhile, not only because it's now all together and people will hopefully read it, but also for me, I learned so much that I would have never have learned in such a short amount of time had I not written that book. And it helps me to connect the big dots, right? How how sexism is related to capitalism and to racism and what sexism and global health has to do with like racist aspects and how women of color were used as guinea pigs in experiments for the birth control pill and what that has to do with the destruction of the environment because the destruction of the environment and kind of the oppression of so-called mother nature really started with colonialism and how all these big aspects connected. And I think that is what we need these days, like to solve the big problems. We need the ability to connect the very big dots and understand systems and really understand where the best mechanism is in these big systems to get into, to then have an impact that hopefully trickles down to the very many linked small aspects. So I think I'm not sure about retiring, actually. <laughs> That's good. I mean, I'm happy to hear that as long as we have, you know, people like you, then things are going upwards and onwards. But to solve big things, we need to also start small. How can one, one who is listening or anyone be more feminist in their work, but also their personal life? Where can one start? Mm. Where can they reconsider how they do things and how they think about things? Being aware is, of course, the most important thing, right? You can't be aware of discrimination and unjust behaviors or systems if if you don't know of them, right? Because we are, I mean, we're born into a world that has all these consequences and statistics that I've been mentioning and and we're being raised in this world and we just think it's normal. It's like normal that as young girls from an early age on, we are afraid of men and that we are afraid of walking home alone and that the danger of being assaulted is always out there. Like every time we not only walk in the dark, but especially when we walk in the dark from young girl age onwards to being grown up women, like we think it's normal, like so many aspects in life, we just think it's normal. And the most important thing really is to have this uh, mindset of like questioning things, of questioning things that are being presented as reality to us. If we speak of like discrimination or, or sexist attitudes or oppression in, in kind of the, maybe in the business context, right? Like it also starts with saying, no, you, you're interrupting me. Like, stop it. Like, I mean, the history of humankind is the history of men, right? It's stories of men. It's the achievements of men. It's it's men 
taking space all the time. And so there are like countless studies that show that how often women are constantly interrupted by men. So it's once you're aware of dynamics, you can then set clear boundaries and say, no, I'm not going to accept it. And, and also why is that dude being paid more than I am? And why is he now hired? And I'm not getting the chance. Like for me as a founder and as a managing director of an organization that works on feminist topics and, and because of that has a like tough job of generating funds because first of all, female founded, female founders compared to male founders barely get any money um, because patriarchy and sexist society. Like if we look at the for-profit world, the venture capital um, funded companies, um, what are the numbers? In the US last year, only two, three percent of all VC money went to male founders and in the nonprofit world, that which is my world, you have similar dynamics where most funds go to male social entrepreneurs and not to the female ones. And then, and then on top of working on feminist topics, it's it's even worse. And so there were instances where I knew of foundations, for example, where we also get part of our money from, where they would explain to me that they're not giving funds, bigger funds to projects, but I knew three male social entrepreneurs who did get funds from them. So I called them and said, excuse me, would you mind explaining that to me? Like really take your space and demand explanations. And we need to shift narratives, even in the small, like take the example of quota, for example, like since forever, women are expected to justify quota, right? I mean, first of all, the fact is that if we have a 50-50, roughly, there are more genders than two but these are the cat, male and female are the ones that are counted um, for. If we have a 50-50 society and but we don't have 50-50 share of power, it's an unjust society, full stop. There's no more arguing, full stop. Mm -hmm. So that is also why I don't understand any 30% quota. Like we don't have a 70 male, 30 female world. Why do we come up with 30% quota? No, it's 50-50. So forever women have been put into a position and had the onus on them to justify quota, right? No, 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 no. I want everyone to justify to me why it would be appropriate to have an over-representation of men in power positions. So, because there's no, no adequate reason for that. So come with your explanations to me. So really need to shift thinking and, and question things. And demand your own space. Yes, a lot. Time for the very tough question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one. Christina, can you tell me who would you like to nominate today as your woman author of achievement? Oh, okay, let me try. So <laughs> <laughs> I know that you have a list. You probably have a you know, list have a with like 500 women. I have a wonderful list. I am so inspired by so many women. You have and to send it afterwards. <laughs> right, yes, I will. So, you know, even for my book, there are like 13 women portrayed in there who I interviewed for the book, 13 trailblazers in foreign policy. Um, and or the foreword is written by someone who I really um, admire. It's Margot Wallström. It's the former Swedish foreign minister who introduced the feminist foreign policy in 2014. But I'm also hugely inspired by by writers, intellectuals like Bell Hooks or Audre Lorde. We have Rupi Kaur and Gloria Steinem and Samantha Power is a foreign policy expert. And yeah, there are just like really many out there. I think it gave a really good insight. I think this is a, the much needed introduction we need to understand what is foreign policy and why it needs feminism. Also understand really 
the history of feminism and why we have to push this forward. Because as you said, we're born into the normal mm. and sometimes we forget to question things. Mm. And today you reminded me how important it is to question things and demand the space. Thank you so much for coming over and awesome. hope to see you very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.